if you can de-risk your business somehow, provide some certainty around future cash flow in whatever way that shows up in your business, that those are the businesses that are transacting right now quickest. Those are the businesses that are still getting record high multiples uh, and record high valuations. Welcome to the Strategy and Leadership Podcast, the podcast that brings you practical advice, lessons, and stories from senior leaders and thought leaders from around the world. The Strategy and Leadership Podcast is brought to you by SME Strategy, working with organizations around the world to create and implement their strategic plans. To learn more, visit smestrategy.net. And now, your host, Anthony Taylor. How's it going, folks? Welcome to today's episode of the Strategy and Leadership Podcast. My guest today, calling from Vancouver, is Kevin Shaw, who is the President and Managing Director at Baker Tilly Canada Corporate Finance. Kevin, how's it going today? Another day in paradise. (laughs) I love it. I love it. (laughs) For our listeners who might not be familiar with what Baker Tilly does, can you give them a little bit of lowdown on on what it what they do, what you do, and then I'll get into some questions. Certainly, yeah. Thanks, Anthony. Great to be here. Baker Tilly, large, relatively large international accounting and advisory shop. We like to be viewed as some company that has global reach, but that operates locally. And so the way that that kind of pans out is that we are, I think, ninth largest in the world. So um, that equates to just over four billion in revenue. But here in Canada, you know, our head office in Vancouver for our corporate finance team, we have about fifteen professionals on our team here. Whereas Canada, uh, as a whole, has uh, close to four thousand employees uh, on the accounting and advisory side. For me specifically. Big Utility Canada Corporate Finance. What does that mean? It's a bit of a mouthful. It's also a bit of a black box, I think, for the average viewer. Investment banking. So specifically helping folks sell their business and, and other folks buy businesses in the private market. So if you own a private company, we are your team to help you transact in some way, shape, or form here in Canada. That's awesome. One one of the things that I'm seeing a lot of is, you know, they're talking about like the big generational transfer of wealth and and how that's going to affect kind of like, I don't know, millennials, zennials, whatever they call guys our age-ish. So I'm curious to to see what that's going on. But um, if I ask you kind of a a state of the union you're seeing with businesses right now, what would you see? And then maybe the second question would be like, you know, if someone is considering selling their business, what are the things that they should consider? So that's kind of like a two-part question. I'll let you answer it however you want. Yeah, okay. So uh, I think State of the Union, great. I mean, we're chatting to private equity groups constantly, even commercial realtors constantly, you know, the big economic drivers of the economy here in North America. What am I seeing? I mean, we're obviously transacting businesses to these group, large venture capital, private equity, strategic buyers, large public companies. And so we are getting a bit of a, a swath of information from uh, different players within the market. And so I like to think I have a bit of a pulse on, on how things are going. And my takeaway from that would be that the first half of the year has been slower than anticipated. Uh, I think there's a lot of precariousness or turmoil in the market, but it hasn't come through as necessarily negativity. Uh, And so what I mean by that is, you know, folks that are looking to, let's say, buy businesses, as an example, it's not that they are not buying businesses, they're just taking longer to do so. And so we're seeing that already pick up. Our anticipation for the back half of the year is significantly better than the first half. And so, you know, how does that 
pan out in terms of a, a, an annual outlook. Yeah, maybe there's a recession or depression or something that is kind of sloping downwards. But I think that that means that the second half of this year is going to be probably better. And my, my takeaway for the reasonings there is that there is this precariousness in the market. We feel kind of uh, unsure about the future. And so typically, you know, at least uh, I'll speak about my industry in the world of finance, you have people that probably think that they're smarter than they actually are. And so they don't really want to make bad decisions. And so in order to not make bad decisions, you want more data points. And so that just manifests in taking a little bit longer to make any decision, which kind of halts the economy as we know it uh, to some degree. And so that's kind of how I would view, view the state of the union. Cool. And actually, just like a quick comment on that is that, you know, yeah. for, for listeners leading, leading their businesses and, you know, if you're doing multi-million dollars of, of, you know, revenue, you know, you might see your sales cycle slow. You might see that uncertainty moving forward. And what I heard from your perspective, and it sounds like your peers, it's a down, but then slowly back up versus a down and keep going down. So it's more of a pause or pent up demand for just the overall, all economic drivers, all major major decisions, transactions or otherwise, so that it's kind of a, everybody's got to wait and see. But if we wait and see kind of, it should should be positive in the long run. Did I kind of interpret that? Yeah, I might, I might, I might reframe it just slightly to cover myself. I think it's more of a stabilization <laughs> than a than a comeback. Right, uh, right. There's also there's also some relatively large, uh, you know, coin bubbles that are sitting out there, and I don't know what's going to happen with them. The next largest one that's being talked about is commercial real estate in the United States. I have seen very specific examples here in Canada popping up as well, maybe not talked about as much, but I think that those bubbles or those trends, should they continue, could further add precariousness or negativity into the market sentiment. And so that will potentially halt some of that stability or, you know, bounce back. So, you know, this is the way that it always goes. It's like you feel like you have a, a pulse on things if things remain constant, which I never do. Um, so, you know, I think that uh, ex- the, the term that is out in the market is extend and pretend, right? So so banks are extending their, their amortization periods. They're extending the covenants that they might have on banks. Uh, maybe you're seeing this on the mortgage side where personal mortgages, you're able to maintain your monthly payments, but your principal amount goes down per payment. And so that's extending and pretending like things are okay. And so that's where I kind of come back and just say, it'll feel more stable, but I'm not sure where it all comes to a head. Cool. I think that really points to just, there's a lot of variables in the economy right now, you know, Canadian or international. And of course, you know, check with your local experts um, in terms of what's going on there. But I think it gives people at least a bit of I don't know if it's reassurance, but certainty or confirmation in terms of what they're seeing, but also the knowing that we don't know and trying to kind of like do our best to to make it happen. So there's that pretending piece. So let's uh, shift gears to kind of my second question is, let's say you're a business owner in this economy. You either are thinking of selling now, you're thinking of maybe selling in the future, or at least, you know, preparing for that. Uh, What should they consider? What should they put in place both in this kind of economic market as well as because it's just general best practice tips for them? It's certainly a loaded question, Anthony. And it's also the multi-million dollar question, right? But I, I can give some really clear general guidance that I think would be helpful to hear, be reiterated, just you know, given that I do this uh, day in and day out uh, for your audience. 
the biggest thing is to protect protect against that precariousness that I uh, I've already been talking about. And so the way that you do that is you give you give yourself, your staff, the eventual owner of your business comfort in the future risks of your business. And so you think anything that may be risky in your business, let's say something like not having customers under contract. Okay. I, I get it. Not all customers are under contract. Sometimes they have longstanding relationships and sweetheart deals and they're tenured with you and you have lots of trust. But just conceptually, if I were to walk into your business knowing nothing about your business, I might like to see contracts that reflect the revenue that you've been getting over the last few years or at least going forward. So anything that adds certainty to the future cash flow of your business will really, really help you moving forward. So if you have a strong labor force that's maybe challenging to assemble, right? You have you know highly skilled labor or, or challenging to find labor, having those folks have employment contracts. Seems like a no-brainer, but lots of businesses don't have employment contracts and they operate just fine. But in the event that a new owner were to come in who doesn't know your, your staff, who doesn't know their backgrounds and have a, a trust and comfort level with them, they want to know that everyone feels solid in their employ. And so one way to do that is to have employment contracts that clearly lay out the rules of engagement for each of their staff members and, and the company. So this, again, I'm coming back to this general idea. If you can de-risk your business somehow, provide some certainty around future cash flow in whatever way that shows up in your business, that those are the businesses that are transacting right now quickest. Those are the businesses that are still getting record high multiples uh, and record high valuations. So on the, just to provide a conversing point, you know, if you're a business that he has really large projects, right, and they come and go, and sure, over the long, medium, long term, you are you have been made lots of money and your staff are really happy, but you you engage in these up and down cycles. Let's call it project-based construction. Yeah, those businesses don't have a lot of future certainty around their cash flow. And so if you're in that business, anything you can do to diversify your revenue, let's just say adding service contracts. So you're still going to have the peaks and valleys that come along with, let's say, general contracting. But if you have some service revenue that can stabilize your revenue levels going forward, you're going to de-risk your company. And, and that's going to be... Um, I think the number one way that you're going to be able to sell your company in the future, because not all companies are saleable. And, and that's really good advice. I mean, it seems like you said, well, I didn't know if you said obvious, but obvious ish to de-risk in terms of selling, but I don't think most people think about it like that. And so let's say you're operating your company right now and you're not necessarily intending to sell, but anything that provides risks provides uncertainty and opens up the door to something going wrong. And so even if there's high degree of trust, you want to mitigate your downside and it'll ultimately like support you in having greater continuity. If you are thinking about selling your business in the next couple of years, the certainty for the for the buyer, uh, the de-risking for the buyer, and the ultimate like enterprise value sounds like those are all key things that they can say. I know what I'm getting. I know what I should get in the future. And there's kind of a paper trail to back it up. It sounds like all of those things support a healthy transaction at a healthy valuation. Yeah, absolutely. Could have said it better myself. One one kind of corner we'll call it that folks don't usually get into that comes along with that de-risking anything I just want to touch on. So yeah, employee contracts, relatively easy to think about and conceptualize and maybe even put in place, maybe even customer contracts as I highlighted. Um, but 
One piece of that equation that usually isn't evaluated is the reliance on the founder or the senior leadership team. And so that is one where it's a little bit more challenging to protect against some downside risk. We call it key man risk. And in the, and in the case of founders that are working really hard, really integral to their business, I'm saying founders, but it could be a CEO, let's say, that person carries what I would consider personal goodwill within the business and doing your best to transfer that from the personal side to the corporate side, corporate goodwill would be maybe the most important thing that I see in the market, given, you know, chatting with buyers and them saying, Hey, you know, Anthony, I love your business. I think it's a wonderful business. I see that the cash flows into the future are de-risk, but it seems like you are integral to the business. And so now I'm concerned that once I give you a lot of money, you are no longer going to be incented to work the way that you've been working. And so I love seeing founders that are taking six months of the, of the year and they're living in Palm Springs or some other beach, some beach somewhere, because it shows that that personal goodwill that they have built their business on has in fact been transferred to some degree to the company. In other words, I love SME strategy. I don't necessarily need to love Anthony. And so I think that, that is, uh, I know that will never be the case, Anthony, for you, but that would be an example of something I would focus on. Yeah, I think it makes a lot of sense because, you know, in terms of us who do strategic planning, we see a lot of organizations who either they're thinking of selling, they've been brought by private equity, they are planning on selling to private equity, and they need to get their things in order, they need a clear strategy. And I've seen it a couple of times where there's kind of a version of like post-sale regret and because the post-sale regret happens, it actually materially impacts the business. And so as a CEO, b- before you sell, you know, what have you done to basically make yourself, you know, a version of redundant? The other thing that I don't think that CEOs think about in that is they, I have a job. I, let's say I'm the CEO. I've got a job. I've been doing the same job for 20 or 30 years. Well, I don't really represent one full-time employee because A, a CEO is rarely working 40 hours. They might be working 50 or 60. And they have 20, 30 years of institutional knowledge, the best way to do everything. So for example, you have a CEO with 30 years of experience and they're doing 60 hours. It really represents like three full-time employees that have some version of knowledge. And the gap that gets left by that person is so significant. And so like building the systems, building the leadership team, putting those structures and systems in place to support you so that as a leader, you can truly lead and let somebody have it kind of like turnkey as much as possible so that that reliance or that risk doesn't land on the CEO. That's one of the big things that I see. Uh, Kevin, thoughts on that? Yeah, I, I I mean, you're hitting the nail on the head for me. I think the pain in changing that can be not earning as much money today. You know, we just chatted with a, a relatively small company here recently and yeah, they're making really good money, uh, super happy. And so you sit there and you think, who wouldn't want to make this type of money? I can sell my business. But the reality is its business is unsaleable because the, all the goodwill is tied up personally with the owners. And to change that, it's going to require them hiring a general manager. So I don't know what the going rate for that industry would be, but let's just say something easy like $150,000 for somebody to run a business that does millions of dollars in revenue. Now the founders are going to earn $150,000 less money annually. So there's there's some pain there. But what it gives you is it de-risks your business a little bit. It allows you to step away if that's something that you're looking to do, or at least focus your energy on something else, which 
likely is growth related. And so, you know, the thesis is you're going to grow your business. The pie is going to get bigger. And if you are thinking about selling, then you're going to be able to actually transact. Whereas prior to hiring that GM, you're either not able to transact or if you do have a lot of what we call contingent or performance-based consideration. So it's like, sure, I'll pay you $10 million, but I'm going to pay $10 million assuming the business does this level of performance over the next five years. Well, it doesn't feel like much of a sale, does it, right? You're not getting a big check and you're not de-risking yourself. You're actually just have the gold handcuffs for the next few years. So yeah, I think that that was my only add-on, which is that pain in changing what you're talking about can actually materialize real dollars. Yeah, absolutely. And the way I thought about it, as you're saying, is like think about it like, as an insurance policy. Like, yes, it's costing yeah. you money, but it's an investment you're spending. And I, my brain number was 150 exactly as well. Was hey, you're going to spend four hundred and fifty thousand dollars because it's likely a three year get them up and running time preparing to sell. You're going to get that back in multiples. You're going to get that back in time. You should get that back in value because you're actually working on the business instead of in the business. It's a good investment, but if you're A, short-sighted, B, haven't had the time or thought of your exit plan, then it might just uh, occur as a cost. And then the other thing that I would love to ask you about next is, you know, like the timeline. Like I had mentioned three years because I think most transactions take three to five years, but if you don't exactly have that foresight, you could be caught on the back foot and saying, oh, dang, now I need to sell. And you're going to get way less of a multiple. You're going to get way less value. So I guess my question is, how long should people be thinking about this? You know, is there a process they should follow other than the general de-risking? And then have you any kind of success stories that you've seen from going from beginning to through that process that really helps somebody like get the juice out of their business? So three-part question, shoot. Yeah, great question, Anthony. I think timeline is always a big one that comes to mind for us as advisors, uh, investment bankers. We're thinking about how to maximize the transaction outcomes or objectives of the client, which obviously purchase price is one of them, but there are many other ones. Um, and so what I'd say is, yeah, the five the five year planning is always a great one to do. It feels a bit hard, I think, on the entrepreneur to think that far out. But just my experience over a decade doing this is some of the changes are structural to the business. And so they they just take time. One quick example I can give you, if there's any reorganization from a corporate structure perspective, not an organizational, but a corporate structure for tax planning, let's say, two years is the golden rule. So if you're going to do any type of restructuring to help maximize the amount of cash that goes into your genes, you know, regardless of the purchase price, but having that top end number and having the most flow to you as a, as an individual, you're going to need at least two years to do that reorganization. So let's assume that you haven't done that. Two years is the bare minimum. And then add on layers to that. We certainly have, I would say the vast majority of clients come to us and they're ready to sell. So they think, or so they want, and they end up having to take some of their wish lists. They're going to, they end up having to pare it down, right? So they may not have the most efficient cash in jeans number at the end of the day, um, but they're happy to transact. I've had Clients come to me and say, hey, I want to sell this like as fast as possible. Hey, I, I always say to them, and not even facetiously, I could probably sell it this month when usually this is a one-year process from start to finish. But you're going to hit take a significant hit on the purchase price because for somebody to go and close that quickly, they're going to need to decrease their purchase price. In other words, protect themselves from any risk that might occur. So I'm kind of touching on a few points there, but I would say 
Generally, this is going to be a one-year process from signing an engagement letter with us, maybe as short as six months, but on average about a year. Um, but then the planning around it uh, using groups like uh, SME actually um, is what I've seen work best in the in the past. Awesome. I, I think it's. I mean, I think it's critical for people to have that realistic expectation. And one of the things I hadn't heard before, and I talked to a lot of people about, you know, things like this, is that two-year restructuring piece. Is you know, most people think, okay, I need to get my organization, and we touched on that too. Like, de-risk the organization, make sure you've got the right leadership in place. You know, do the organizational structure stuff, but like the corporate structure stuff, so that you can maximize your take-home, minimize tax. And of course, this is not tax or legal advice. Talk to your legal and tax professionals about this, but really like setting up yourself as an entity to maximize that takeaway. You know, you've spent 10, 20, 30 years building this thing, you know, don't minimize the upside by trying to rush it in a year or two, you know, really do that planning so that you can make the most of that. One of the last things I wanted to ask, you you know, do you have any success stories, again, without giving away any kind of secret sauce, but just for our kind of listeners to kind of put themselves in that position to think about, hey, I should do this or something that you did that you said, hey, this really worked out for one of my clients. And then we'll wrap up for the day. Certainly have a few. I think the one that comes to mind that is topical, I mean, being on your podcast with your your listeners, and this is going to sound like somewhat of a plug, but... Uh, I'm going to go with it anyways, because it's it's not meant to be that way. Uh, we had a, a client years ago that had a relatively large organization, you know, just over 30 million revenue, uh, really good profit margin. We usually trade on something called EBITDA. So EBITDA was north of $5 million. And so it was a really nice little transaction, worked in what I would call an unsexy industry. So one of those industries where there's not a ton of competitors and all that good stuff. And so we ended up uh, working with them for a few months and they really wanted to keep the pool of buyers small. And so in my world, what that does is it decreases competition uh, and competition is what puts pressure on the price uh, to go upwards. And so we were kind of not in favor of this. And actually during that time, these couple of few buyers, they really were dragging their feet because there wasn't much competition. And so, you know, it's hard for uh, an investment banker to really push them forward. If, if your best alternative is to do nothing uh, when uh, the founder wants to transact. And so uh, we ended up not going with the any of those purchasers, retooling and going back to a, do a full market process. In that time, they hired uh, a consultant because as much as I have some tips and tricks as to how you would maximize value, we don't do any of that work, Anthony. And so uh, they hired someone just, just like yourself. I'd consider a management consultant and they came in and they ended up creating some processes for them. Simple things that we all know businesses should have but it takes a real effort to get them through a management team and change the culture. Things like uh, a weekly check-in report, monthly reporting that goes specifically to the executive of the business. So they can get a quick snapshot. They call it a scorecard. So they can get a quick snapshot of how the business is doing, a pulse on the business, if you will. Simple things like revenue, but then you also have like number of pitches that are out there and a uh, number of failed pitches and conversion rates and all these great metrics that any individual business would need specifically for them. There's no ubiquitous scorecard. And so they went up going through that process, coming back to us, we ended up going to market, running a full market process. So from the the, the first offer that they received with what I would consider uh, a limited scope, only a couple of buyers and not having these processes in place, I won't name any names so I can share with you some details. They ended up getting offers in the $20 million range for their business uh, after the competitive process on the back of a well-processed 
organization and systematized organization, they ended up getting offers that were just north, uh, south of $50 million. And so um, I'm not going to pretend like every business can increase their multiple that way. But what I will tell you is if you're talking to private equity groups or sophisticated buyers in some way, and they think and feel, and because it's true, it's it's come through, the proof is in the pudding, if you will, that they don't need to do much. There's a management team. There's a reporting structure. They can get that reporting. They can have a pulse on the business fairly easily. This truly becomes an investment, not a business that they have to go in and operate and roll up their, up their sleeves. They will pay a premium for that, or at least on the top end of your valuation metrics. And so this is a, a classic example of that $20 million to just in the high 40s. It was a wonderful result. Tears in the boardroom after it all closed because people weren't expecting that value. We felt like we did a great job, uh, but really it was on the backs of the management team that invested in some of these systems and processes up front. Uh, and like you said earlier in the podcast, it paid dividends. That's awesome. That's amazing. I mean, for those of you playing at home, that goes from a 4X on EBITDA to 10X on EBITDA. And of course, that's not going to happen for everybody. But, you know, whatever that cost, a couple thousand, hundred thousand probably on the front end, like resulted in an extra like, you know, 30 million on the back end. So, you know, whatever scale for your business, I think it's critical. I think getting good advisors on your team and foresight to be able to do that successfully is key. Obviously, Kevin and I are biased, but we see it all the time. Like you're playing the game, make sure that you can get the right players to help you. So I'm totally cool, you know, giving a plug for <laughs> Baker Tilly and, and Kevin Shaw. And of course, I'm okay with giving a plug for myself, Anthony Taylor at SME Strategy. But more than anything, it's what are you going to get out of it? So whether you hire us, you hire somebody else, you know, really think of the upside that it brings to your business and have the foresight to de-risk and uh, support that immediate integration from your buyer side. So uh, Kevin, uh, where can people connect with you? Where can they learn more about your work? And yeah, we'll finish up. Yeah. BakerTilly.ca slash corporate finance. That's where they can find us. But you know, quick Google, like you just said, Anthony, whether you hire us or somebody else, we're just proponent of the industry. Make sure you're using the right advisors. So I'm really happy to be on your podcast. It was great discussion. Again, surprised you had no questions planned because uh, I think that you got uh, some good information for your viewers. So thanks very much, Anthony. Awesome. Thank you, Kevin. I appreciate it. Really fun, a personal and professional level. And uh, yeah, don't forget Baker Tilly is across Canada. Again, not a sponsored episode, but my guest today, Kevin Shaw, who is the president and managing director at Baker Tilly Canada Corporate Finance. And as I had highlighted earlier, you know, if you're an owner of a business or you're thinking about buying a business, really having that long-term foresight. You said the golden rule, two, two years to structure that corporate, that corporate change, you know, inputting processes, change management can take two years, and then the transaction process in itself can take a year. So three years out as a minimum to do that, you're going to potentially increase your upside by millions of dollars. I think it's worth the investment, but I'll leave it up to you, the viewer, the listener. So I appreciate you being here, Kevin. This has been the Strategy and Leadership Podcast. My name is Anthony Taylor. Thanks for subscribing. If you haven't yet, you should do whatever kids do these days. And thanks for being here. See you next time. Thanks for listening to today's episode of the Strategy and Leadership Podcast. If you haven't yet, be sure to subscribe so you don't miss a single episode. We post twice a week, so you can count on us for your weekly source of content to help you grow and expand as a leader. And if you enjoyed today's episode, please consider giving us a review. We read every single one, and it helps us make a better show for you, the listener. 
Also, it helps more people find the show, which means we can help as many people as possible. We appreciate you listening and following along, and we hope you have a wonderful rest of the day. And as Anthony says, until next time.